0: there. Our second reading this morning is uh, from 1 John. I'm going to be reading uh, chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. I am reading in the NIV version and that is uh, provided for you there uh, in in your bulletins. Hear the word of God. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. It is truth. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would be present uh, with us this morning as we take a look at your word. We um, thank you for this space in which we can uh, set aside time from our week, um, set aside a A place from our our normal activities to uh, turn our attention to you. We pray that uh, it would be you who speaks uh, through your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commands. This is how we know that we are in Jesus. Whoever Claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. Those are two of the chunks that we just read from uh, 1 John chapter 2. In Matthew uh, chapter 22, one of the experts of the law comes to Jesus and he asks him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you all remember the answer. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest command. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some other time we can uh, dig in a little bit more into what it means to love God. Today, I, I just want you to notice that whatever it means to love God, We're supposed to do that thing with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind. Our heart uh, is our affections, our soul is our power of living, and our mind is our thinking or our reason. Part of our love of God is our affections. We should desire God, we should be delighted with God, we should be enamored of God. We should be thrilled to be with God. Part of what happens uh, in worship is designed to heighten our affections. It is appropriate to sing to God. It is appropriate to call out to God. It is appropriate to clap and dance for God. It is appropriate to speak in tongues in worship. God is our husband. We are his bride. We should be in love with him. Another part of our love of God is our soul or our power of life. We talk a lot about Christian stewardship. Stewardship is the idea that everything that we have and uh, all that is in our power is in fact owned by God. But we are his stewards, his employees who kind of uh, uh, regulate that stuff. We are the overseers of the estate of God. When we love God with our whole soul or power or life, we commit all of our time and talent and treasure to God. Now, we all understand that we are commanded to tithe our income, to set aside 10% of our earnings, no matter how much or how little we earn. Yes, if we are old and on a fixed income, we should tithe. And yes, if we are young and get a dollar a week allowance, we should tithe. But if we set aside 10% of our income as our tithe, think of how strange it would be if we used the other 90% to serve the devil. Everything that we have, all of our money, all of our time, all of our talent, all of it has come from God and all of it should honor God. Yes, we give our tithe to God, but we use the other part of our 90% to bring honor to God as well. The third part of our love of God is our mind or our reason, our intellect. I have been, uh, in my dissertation writing, been working through the minutes uh, of the church, the minutes of the session of the church, and I've been reading through the 1960s, and at some point during, during the 1960s, a group of young people come to the session and they're complaining to the session about the sermons of Pastor Clayton because they're too intellectual. If the sermons that you hear from this pulpit are more intellectually challenging than a soap opera or a TikTok video, good. Good. They should be, because God deserves our best, and that includes our minds. Okay, so that's enough about the love of God. We'll talk more about that. I want to think more about that another time. The second most important commandment, and it's a kind of an equivalent of the first commandment, is to love your neighbor as yourself. A little later in First John, the apostle whom Jesus loved writes, whoever does not love their brother or their sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Okay, Do you see the connection here? The love of neighbor and the love of God are in fact connected. If we don't love our neighbor, we can't possibly say that we love God. The love of God and the love of other people are connected when John says, whoever does not love his brother or sister. Now, when he uses that language, he's referring to the Christian community, brother and sister, as Christian code for people who are part of the body of Christ. But it is also true that Christians have a duty to love all people, including non-Christians, but we have a special duty to love people inside of the fellowship. So love of God and love of people are connected. Loving God is more mysterious because God is more mysterious. Loving people, however, is something that we can see rather plainly. And so we go back to our first reading, which we've been reading every week for several weeks now, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians in a church that he had started, There were a number of problems in that church, including cliquishness and favoritism. And so Paul gives them, you know, a fatherly talking to about Christian love. Christian love, he tells us, is more important than preaching. Well, it's more important than prophecy. It's more important than charity. It's even more important than martyrdom. If we don't have Christian love, Paul tells us we don't actually gain anything. It's very important. But what is it? And so then in the passage that we keep reading every week, we get this uh, characterization. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy the things that other people have. Love doesn't boast about itself. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor other people. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The greatest commandment is to love God with our whole heart and soul and mind. And the second and equal commandment is to love our neighbors in the same way that we love ourselves. And Paul gives us a description of what that love would look like. But then we think about the passage that we started this sermon with in 1 John 2, 3, and 6. Namely, we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commands. And whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus uh, live as Jesus lived. And what else can that possibly mean except to be patient and kind, to not envy the things that other people have, to not boast about ourselves, to not be proud, to not dishonor people, to not be self-seeking, to not be easily angered, and to not keep record of wrongs. That's what keeping Jesus' commands looks like. That's what it means to live the way that Jesus lived. And so that's what it means to say that we have come to know Jesus. That's what it means to say that we are living the way that Jesus lived, that we are living in Jesus. My concern is that we have come to know about Jesus, but we have not come to know Jesus. It's good to know about Jesus. But that knowledge alone is not going to save us. What saves us is when we've come to know Jesus personally. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says to the church that he had planted, I resolve to know nothing with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. I resolve, Paul says, I made a conscious decision when I came to you and began to preach the gospel to you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him laying down His life for His friends, the greatest of all loves, the love that God has for us. That message of Christ and Christ crucified is the core Christian message. There is no... Christianity without the crucifixion. There are no saved people without the blood of Christ. It is the core of our preaching. It always has been the core of the preaching of the church. The love of God which led God to lay down his own life for us. In 1 John 2, 2 we read, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which sins? Well, how about the sins of not loving God and not loving the neighbor? How about the sins of being impatient or the sin of being unkind or the sin of envy? What about the sin of boasting? What about the sin of pride? What about the sin of dishonoring other people? What about the sin of being self-seeking? What about the sin of being easily angered? What about the sin of keeping a record of wrongs? Those are some of the sins that Jesus' death atoned for. Christ died for those kinds of sins. And this room is full of people who have committed those kinds of sins. This room is full of people for whom Christ died so that you might be saved. What does it mean to know Christ or to be in Christ as opposed to know about Christ? John, of course, is writing to Christians. John is writing to the church. All of his talk in this letter that we've been reading about keeping the commands of Christ because we are in Christ, this is a message for Christians, it's not a message for pagans. But what does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? John, of course, had a very special relationship with Jesus. He was one of the twelve. He lived with Jesus non-stop for three years. He was acquainted with Jesus personally. He knew the character of Jesus. He knew the teachings of Jesus. He also witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's where 1 John begins. Maybe you remember. It begins this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John was an eyewitness He was an ear witness to Jesus. He knew Jesus in a very rich and a complex way. But there's something even more. Because others also spent time with Jesus, but failed to understand who Jesus was. Think of Judas. Judas also was one of the twelve. Judas also spent three years with Jesus, but he failed to know Jesus and it cost him his life. It cost him his eternal life. After Jesus died and then was resurrected, Jesus had to explain to his followers what it all meant. What the apostles teach, what the church has always taught, is that the death of Jesus is a sacrifice that pays the penalty for the sins of other people. In the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, God gave the people a system of sacrifices which prepare them to understand Jesus and to understand his death. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us. In the Old Testament, God gives the uh, the, the blood was the blood of sheep and goats. In the New Testament, God gives a, a new sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice that doesn't have to be repeated. The sacrifice that is adequate to cover the sins of any person who wants to have their sins forgiven. John knew this Jesus in a special way. And we too can know Jesus, not as well as John knew him, but we can know him well enough. And how is it that we know Jesus? Well, there's only one way. Uh, we read the Bible. Okay, Jesus, the, all the information that we have about Jesus uh, is in the Bible. Jesus is both a character in the Bible and Jesus is the author of the Bible. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the eternal word of God. The Bible is the written word of God and the Bible shows us the heart and the mind of God. In the same way that reading a letter from someone will show you something about the character of that person, reading the Bible shows us something of the character of God. Not everything. We don't know everything about God, but we know enough. For our salvation, If you want to know about Jesus, if you're curious about him, the only way is to spend more time in the Bible. And don't just restrict yourself to the Gospels or to the New Testament where Jesus appears as one of the characters. Because Jesus, as the Word of God, as the second person of the Trinity, is the author of the whole Bible. It is the same God who speaks in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So we know Jesus... By immersing ourselves in the Word of God. How is it that we can be in Jesus? What does that mean, to be in Christ? To be in Christ means to be part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a a phrase that the Bible uses for the church. The body of Christ is the sum of all people, past, present, and future, who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and united to Christ. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit does a number of things in us. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is enables us to receive and believe the Bible as the word of God. The gospel is only found in one place. It's found in the Bible. And if we don't believe the Bible, we will never believe the gospel. And if we don't believe the gospel, we are not part of the church and we are not in Christ. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is enable us to receive and to believe the Bible as the word of God. Number two, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. It's the easiest thing in the world to see the sins of other people. Even people going to hell can see The sins of other people. Just pointing my finger at someone and saying that's a sin, that doesn't make me righteous. Seeing the sins of other people is very easy. The hard part is to see my own sin. We don't do that naturally, but the Holy Spirit can do that for us supernaturally. When we're convicted of our sin, we understand what sin is. We understand that we have committed sins and we're mortified. We're also terrified because if we understand what sin is, we also understand that God hates sin. And that puts the fear of God in us. A convicted sinner is an unhappy person. It's no fun to know that you're a sinner and to stand in dread of God. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work. Number three, the Holy Spirit gives us the faith that we need in order to believe the gospel which announces that Jesus died to take away the sins of anyone who believes in him. We cannot have that faith by ourselves, but the Holy Spirit can give us that faith. When that happens, we feel a tremendous relief. Because we're no longer afraid of God or the wrath of God, those who are afraid of God, those who hate God because God is a wrathful God, those are people who have not yet received the faith to believe in Jesus and to have their sins forgiven when they're converted. When that happens, we feel a sense of relief, a lightness. We feel a tremendous freedom. Freedom from slavery to sin. Number four... After we have believed the Bible, after we have been convicted of our own sin, after we have received faith to believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit continues day by day to change us. We begin to slowly and bit by bit have the mind and the character of Christ seep into our own minds and our own characters. By the Holy Spirit, we're grafted into the body of Christ. What belongs to Christ by union with Christ now belongs to us. And so our old patterns of living begin to fade away and new patterns of living begin to emerge. The Holy Spirit does this. We call this, the theological term is sanctification. Our sanctification continues throughout our lives until the day we die and we see Jesus face to face. And in that moment, we will be made perfect. But let me talk about one more thing. Let me talk about baptism. Because baptism is a sacrament and baptism is the visible sign that we have been included in the visible body of Christ. Sometimes we baptize adults or children who know what they're doing when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, when they confess their sins and repent and promise to follow Christ for the rest of their lives. We call that a believer baptism. When the Ethiopian eunuch uh, met Philip and understood the gospel, immediately upon having faith in Christ, he was baptized. As soon as Philip and the eunuch find some water, uh, the eunuch gets dunked in the water. Baptism, of course, is not magic. Baptism does not wash away sins. But the Bible commands us to be baptized if we believe in Jesus. It is an outward and visible sign to the world that we believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and that we have promised to follow Jesus until the day that we die. A few weeks ago, we had uh, three believer baptisms uh, out on the north lawn uh, of the church. These were three people who had uh, repented of their sins had professed faith in Jesus and had promised Uh, To follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Their baptism was a public sign of their conversion and their commitment to Christ. And it was also a sign of their inclusion in what we call the visible body of Christ, the, the, the local church. Baptism is a sacrament of inclusion in the visible body of Christ. But we don't only believe, we don't only baptize believers. We also baptize the children of believers. The Bible tells us that the promises are for God's people and their children. And so when we baptize our babies, we are claiming God's promises for them. When we baptize a baby, what we call an infant baptism or a covenant baptism, we are marking that child in a public way, just as in the Old Testament the people of God marked their children with circumcision. When a faithful Jew circumcises his son at eight days, he is obeying God's command and marking that child as a member of the covenant community. Now, is that child saved because he's circumcised? Is a baby saved because it's baptized? The Bible says no. Each person must come to faith for themselves one day. And so the child who is circumcised or the child who is baptized when he grows up must profess faith in God for himself. Baptizing an adult doesn't save the adult, but it is a sacramental sign that that person believes in Jesus and is part of the family of God. Baptizing a baby does not save the baby, but it is a sacramental sign that those parents believe in Jesus and that this child will be raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so if you have never been baptized and you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you, you should get baptized as soon as possible, like this afternoon. If you are a follower of Jesus and your babies have not been baptized, you should baptize them and announce to the world that this child is going to be raised in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. So in our closing minutes here, I want us just to spend a little time in the quiet thinking of where we are with Christ uh, this morning. I was a little alarmed when I was uh, reading uh, this passage from 1 John this morning. Uh, 1 John says, we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep Jesus' commands. And of course, Jesus' commands... Come down to the love command to, to love God and to love others. And the Bible gives a nice summary of what that looks like to love others, to be patient, to be kind, to not envy, to not boast, to not be proud, to not dishonor others, to not be self-seeking, to not be easily angered, and to not keep a record of wrongs. How are we doing with that this morning? That's a question that uh, each of us in the church needs to ask ourselves seriously. You don't have to give me the answer to that question, but I think each one of us needs to talk with God and ask that question. So why don't we do that now? Let us pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the instruction of the prophets and the apostles who have gone before us. We thank you for the insight that you have uh, given them into your character and your nature, your law uh, we pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning we would allow your word to shine a light into our lives uh, hold a mirror up to us about who we are and and, and where we are. we pray that um, that your light would, keep us from stumbling, that your light would keep us in your path. Lord Jesus, you were patient and you were kind, and we pray that you would make us more like yourself. You did not envy, you did not boast, you were not proud, and we pray that you would make us more like yourself. You did not dishonor other people and you were not self-seeking we pray that you would make us more like yourself you were not easily angered and you kept no record of wrongs and we pray that you would make us more like yourself Lord we pray that in our lives and in our hearts in our soul in our minds we, we, we pray that We would be so filled with Christ that we would be so much in Christ uh, that our lives and our attitude and our actions and our speech would bring glory to Christ and honor to to the Father. We thank you for sending your Son into the world to rescue us from from ourselves and from our waywardness. We pray that you continue to guide us uh, in the paths that are right, and true, and good. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.